university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers. I am Dr. Christopher Bell. I am joined today by Dr. Lauren Kamachi, and we are on part two of our two-part episode, our ballooned episode that became two parts about the concept of canon in popular culture. Which, if we're being honest, we should have realized it was going to become two episodes, given that we've spent about four years worth of conferences talking about this. <laughs> given the fact that both of us have PhDs in rhetoric and canon is all we talk about Literally all day, every all day. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we probably should have we probably should have had a pin on that before we got started. So, but. given the fact that this is a two-parter, if you're coming into this one without having listened to the previous episode, we strongly encourage you to hit the pause button right now and go back and listen to the previous episode because there's some important definitional work that we do there and we talk about some cool stuff the first part of the episode. You're going to want the prequel yes. to the stuff that we're talking about today. So, Here's where we left off. So this seems like a good moment to talk about the case study of Harry Potter, to talk about why it's important for a discipline to have this conversation and why our creative solution to the canon problem in Harry Potter seems to be a way to account for the diversity of the fandom in addition to creating a vocabulary that scholars can use to discuss it. So... Chris and I have been meeting, along with many of our other scholarly friends, at the Southwest Popular and American Culture Association Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, for the past six years. Uh, yeah, almost seven. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we have, since pretty much the beginning, had the conversation of what counts as Harry Potter canon. And people would say, you nerds, why do you need to talk about this? This is dumb. Well, why, Chris? Why do we have to talk about it? Because it is, in fact, very important that we have this conversation. Why does it matter? It is very important that we have the conversation, and it is also dumb, but it's not so dumb. And the reason for that is because if you are going to put together a scholarly organization with the idea that you are going to try to gain some greater knowledge or truth or meaning out of a text, it's really important that everyone who shows up there understands what text we're talking about. Right. It's like having different editions of the same book. If you're on page 12, it doesn't matter if everybody has a different page 12. Exactly. And because originally in the first couple of years, we ran into a lot of people talking past each other. And they're talking past each other because one person is using the films as the primary text. One person is using the books as the primary text. And those two texts are fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. There are things that happen in the books that don't happen in the movies. There are things that happen in the movies that don't happen in the books. Mm -hmm. And both are claiming this is what the story is. Mm -hmm. And so we needed a way to divest those two things. Right. And then layered on top of that is, but J.K. Rowling said. 
And so we needed a way to deal with that as well. And beyond just the unclustering and cluster jam situation at our conferences, there's an institutional reason that we needed to do this. Which is that every discipline, every academic discipline has its canon. Every academic discipline has a has a group of works that quote unquote counts for more. Right. That forms its foundation. You know, Lauren and I are both rhetoricians. Both of us could probably sit here and expound upon Socrates or Aristotle or Cicero or Kenneth Burke or because they're the foundation of the discipline that we study. And within that discipline, whether and Lauren and I do two very different kinds of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Lauren's more of a political rhetorician. I am more of a visual rhetorician. Mm-hmm. That said, we both had to study those guys because that's the canon. Yeah. It's what you're forced to do within a discipline. And that's not to say that the canon can't be expanded or changed a little it, bit, but right. it doesn't change that at one point, like here, here was the ground rock. Here was the bedrock. Right. It doesn't matter who comes along in sociology next? Mm-hmm. If you are a sociologist, you will study Marx, Weber, and Durkheim because that's who you study. Right, because they are the original canon. Because that's who you study. Right. If you're going to major in British literature, you better get ready to read Chaucer because <laughs> right. you're going to. Right. So the reason that this matters, that saying this matters, is that from an institutional standpoint, it is still not considered common sense that you should in fact, study works of popular culture, and especially works of children's popular culture, or young adult popular culture. At least not in a culture, serious manner. In a serious manner, and that it should matter in the same way as your colleagues who are studying Chaucer. And so having our terminology straight reduces the infighting and messiness of the scholarship and creates a more streamlined front then to fight a bigger problem or to fight a bigger issue. It gives us ground to be able to say, well, if you want to know what we're doing, here's what you should, here's where, here's our starting point. Right. Right. Rather than, well, this person's starting here, this other person's starting over here, this person's starting way all the way over here, blah, blah, blah. So the other problem we faced was that in fandom culture, in different fan culture situations, you will usually find arguments, and this will come along, I'm sure, in the toxic fandom episode, that there is that in-group, out-group, and policing the borders of the in-group and the out-group can get sometimes even violent. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at how the Star Wars, quote-unquote, fans treated... The woman who played Rose. It wasn't just Kelly Tran. It was Daisy Ridley. Well, sure. Who also had to remove herself from social media. Oh, she did? I didn't media. realize that she did that, yeah. too. God, like, yeah. ugh. So it can get violent. And so one of the things that the Harry Potter fandom, and there's this whole other problem about Rowling's personal political standpoints that complicates this conversation. Well, I think it does pollute and we don't have to just talk about JK Rowling in that respect. Orson Scott Card is another prime example of this. Orson Scott Card wrote Ender's Game, Mm. which if you're a science fiction fan, Ender's Game is pretty close to a core text when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. Every kid who's a science fiction fan ends up reading Ender's Game. Mm. Orson Scott Card 
is a huge homophobe and spent all this money supporting legislation against gay people and so on and so forth to the point where people were boycotting the film Mm -hmm. which had nothing to do with Orson Scott Card but they were boycotting the film because they didn't want him to get the money or more importantly what they were doing is they were ghosting the film Mm -hmm. so they would buy tickets for other movies and then go see Ender's Game right so they're consuming the work without paying So they could money. see the movie without having to give him any money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it does affect how people view the canon. So the way that this comes up, the reason this came up is that it has recently come to light that J.K. Rowling may very well be what is referred to as a TERF, T-E-R-F, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. There was a branch of feminism that was pretty... Um, vocal in the 1970s and 80s and some that continue today that suggests that trans women are just men parading around in women's clothing who are just trying to assert their dominance over women's spaces even more than they already get to by societal standards and want to exclude trans women from any feminism or feminist conversation, which is, of course, a form of violence. It is a form of exclusion that is harmful and makes the conversation more limited. And so for folks who have found comfort in Harry Potter for being a a widely diversifying text, finding that out about the author ranges from icky to downright crisis of sort of identity. I tend to be more on the it's icky side. Because it's not our bodies on the line. Number one, it doesn't affect me. It's not my issue. But number two... I feel the same way about her casual racism. So this doesn't surprise me. And therefore, I'm already used to it not affecting the way I see the work. And so it's easy for me to go, yeah, well, you're surprised she's turf. Let's talk about all the racist stuff in there, too. And to use a phrase that I think is important that our colleague Talanda put forth is love the work, disregard or dislike the author. Part of being a death of the author subscriber is that you get to say, I'm going to study this work as separate from this author because it's not hers anymore it's ours i don't have to in any way like or appreciate jk rowling in order to like or appreciate her work right but those same people who say stuff like that don't extend that to say johnny depp right in that same space right right no you're quite right there's a fair amount of hypocrisy in that, but that's a whole different that conversation. That's a whole different for a conversation whole different that I hope will come up in a later show. <laughs> but the reason I brought this up is that, in general, the Harry Potter fandom is seen as pretty darn inclusive. So it is a fandom that draws forth very diverse groups of fans especially in terms of sexuality. Lots of folks who are part of the LGBT community find a comfort in Harry Potter, find it to be a welcoming fan group. What's the name of the group? Why am I blanking on the name of the group that's the... The Harry Potter Alliance? The Harry Potter Alliance, yes. Oh my gosh. That is basically a Harry Potter-based... It's almost like a gay-straight alliance, but it's got a Harry Potter theme. It's more of like an inclusive activist group. Harry Potter Alliance is really outwardly activist. They do a lot of stuff. Yes, and they tend to draw a a large queer following in their work. So while it does, and some of our colleagues have rightly pointed out that it still is a pretty white fandom, it does 
tend to draw a more diverse audience than fandom audience than you might see in other fandoms. So separating canon out into it's either this or it's out gets hairy. It gets problematic because the minute you start taking things out, you might start taking people out. Sure. And so we wanted to have a conversation in which we figured out how can we account for what are meaningful differences between the various texts available in the Potterverse, the Harry Potter universe, without excluding the groups of people that may have entered this fandom via something that maybe isn't quote-unquote as important as another part. Well, sure. In that it does position the text very specifically. I mean, if we say this part's in and this part's out, we are also saying this fan is in and this fan is out. Exactly. And that sort of lies in opposition to what, generally speaking, is the basis of the Harry Potter fandom, which is a sort of all-are-welcome quality. But it also positions us in terms of then which texts we go back to as canon. Right. Part of the reason why I think the movies are its own specific thing that aren't Harry Potter canon, that are what we might call alternate canon, right? They're, it's an alternate canon. Yep. It's its own thing, is Ginny Weasley. Right. Which we've talked about. Right. There's certain very important departures that happen that make it its own canon. It's, it's secondary right. canon based on the original. So right. what we did... When we were at this conference, over the course of, it took probably three conferences, two or three conferences to even get to this vocabulary, but we came up with a vocabulary. Hey, hold that thought. Let's take a short break here. We'll be back in two and two. Hi, just taking a quick break from the action to let you know about a really cool thing that is happening with the beginning of season three. And that is that we have launched a YouTube channel. That's right. All of your favorite Deconstruction Workers podcast episodes are now available via YouTube with some really cool visual inserts and examples of the things we're talking about, all kinds of cool stuff going on. So please go to youtube.com and search for Cool Channel Classroom or follow the link from the show's description or from the deconstructionworkers.com. Thanks. And now, back to the show. Basically... My analogy is normally people treat canon as an in-tray and an out-tray. It's one or two. It's one or the other. We instead have realized canon in Harry Potter to be like a filing cabinet. It's all in the same container. You just have to pick the right drawer. So Chris has already talked about alternate canon, which we had initially named alt-canon before the alt-right became a thing. So we go with alternate canon now. Alternate canon is the movies because they've taken on a life of their own and they they are the touchstone for many, many, many people, especially a lot of our Gen Z students who have not had the chance to sit and read the books but have seen the movies a lot. Canon, plain old canon, for Chris and I and the majority of the group that we've worked with is the basic measuring rod by which we define our discipline books one through seven. Then we came up with something that we were like, well, what the heck do we do with things like Potter Puppet Pals? What do we do with fan fiction? What do we do with rolling, tweeting all over us all the time? So we had to come up with some other terms. So Gerard Genet came up with this theory called paratexts. And his whole book was studying the things about a book that aren't the words inside the book. They're the font. They're the page settings. They're the, the paper weight. They're the things that affect your experience of the text, but aren't the text. They make up the book, but they don't make up the story. Correct. So the things that we consider to be paracanon are all sorts of things. Things like the Wizarding World. Things like Potter Puppet Pals. 
Harry and the Potters, which, by the way, if you haven't watched the Harry and the Potters video that is the Potter Puppet Pals doing the video, you're missing out because it's just <laughs> wonderful. Then we came up with, we just borrowed a word. Our fan studies colleagues had come up with something called Fanon a long time ago, Fan Canon. So we just left that one be. That's its own thing. And then we came up with Meta Canon, using those, the word that describes when an author talks about their own stuff, Meta Canon, Meta Canon. So Dumbledore is gay, Meta Canon. So it's Canon, Alternate Canon. Paracanon, Fanon, and Metacanon. A way to talk about all of the stuff that we might encounter that people may use as their starting point to enter the conversation about Harry Potter, but which still acknowledges that none of the other four categories are possible if we don't have those original seven novels. Which is the same thing we could do with any text. Pick a text. We could do that with Marvel. The comics from whenever the comics started. So anything from the 1940s with Captain America all the way through the 1980s with something like Cloak and Dagger. Mm -hmm. The original comic books become the canon. And then things like the Cloak and Dagger television show, for example, become alternate canon. They're not the original text, but they are an original text of its own form and in its own way. The Spider-Man movies are a better example because they've been rebooted so many times. And each one of them becomes its own alternate canon. There's the Tobey Maguire alternate canon. There's the Andrew Garfield mm -hmm. alternate canon. There's the Tom Holland alternate canon. But the actual canon is Lee and Ditko from 1960s. Right. So we can do it with anything. It becomes more interesting with something that starts in motion media rather than physical text, mm. like Stranger Things, for example. Right. The Netflix series is the actual canon. Yes. It's the actual original canon. Right. And the comic books are actually an alternate canon at this point because they came out after. Oh. They're secondary texts. They're not the actual text. I didn't even know they were yeah, comic there books. Yeah, there are. There's, there's a Stranger Things comic series. Interesting. But it's an alternate canon because it came out after. And if it has departed from where the plots have gone, then yes, it by necessity has to be. Yes, it's absolutely not the actual canon. And the thing that makes this on alternate canon, the thing that differentiates fan fiction from the Stranger Things comic series is that there's a sense of licensing. Legitimacy. Legitimacy, yeah. I was going to say, for lack of a better term, but legitimacy. Some major, this isn't just somebody writing some story and posting it to fanfiction.net. Which is why, as much as I would like to consider Harry Potter and the Cursed Child fan fiction, right. and therefore fanon, it's actually alternate canon. Because it has the... Damn. Blessing and endorsement mm -hmm. of J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So the, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is actually alternate canon. And it depends on how you're reading it. Because, I mean, if you're thinking of it as sort of an, an aesthetic experience, it's, I don't know, I would still argue. But again. When you remove the visitors and just look at what's being presented, yes. Warner Brothers owns that. Yeah, yes. And I guess I'm thinking of it in the terms of the participatory aesthetic experience of being there, which would make it a pair canon situation. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, because it becomes, then it becomes a combined experience. It's them producing a theme park version of the movie sets for you to be a part of. For you to play in. For you to play in, yeah. So it kind of exists in these two simultaneous worlds. Which again, for us is important less to be like, oh, that's pair canon. No, that's meta canon. Like it doesn't matter exactly what you call them. The point is here that we're able to say they all count. It's location. It's location. It's an ability to locate the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily hierarchical, although both of us being rhetoricians prioritize original text. Correct. Even if I were to take my biases off the table, practically speaking, 
you don't get the movies if you don't have the book. Right. Had the movies come out first, you'd say you don't get the book if you don't have the movie. But it becomes messy when things are created simultaneously. For example, Transformers. Oh. So in 1984, Hasbro releases the toys at the same time Marvel releases the comic books, mm-hmm. at the same time Sunbow releases the TV show on purpose mm. because they're coordinating their efforts. Right. They're creating a synergy around the product. So which one comes first, quote well, But unquote? if those ones would all be canon because they all were a simultaneously coordinated release, it's collusion. But they're all three completely different stories. Oh. So each one of them is its own canon. Right. Each one of it's its own set of canon. Right. And in that case, time does matter. Right. Because they were all simultaneous releases. Right. So in Transformers fandom, the conversation becomes, which G1, Generation 1, timeline are you talking about? Which G1 timeline? Right. Are you talking about comic timeline? Or are you talking about TV timeline? Or are you talking about toy timeline? Right. Because those are three different things. But they're all original canon. Yeah. Because they came out simultaneously. I mean, and and on purpose. And I think that uh, in that case, the sort of the machinations of authorship and capitalism matter because they were meant to be different and meant to come out at the same time. Right. Because they were meant to get you to buy three completely separate products. Not only that, but they would advertise the toys during the commercials of the TV show and then advertise the TV show in the comic book. Lovely. On purpose. Oh my God. They would introduce a character in the comic and then they would introduce that character on the TV show and then they would put out the toy so that you already knew who the character was so you would go and buy it. Right. It was brilliant. Rick Stevens, mm-hmm. one of our other deconstruction workers, and I are in the final stages of writing a book about this. Yes. Because they did the same thing with G.I. Joe. Oh, yeah. So this was the way right after Reagan deregulates the say, children's advertising. Reagan. Yeah. Right after he deregulates children's advertising, this is how Hasbro and Marvel made all the money in the universe right. for about four years. Was it, were the My Little Ponies, was that Hasbro too? That was also Hasbro, yeah. and that was because they were making so much money off of Transformers and G.I. Joe, they, they the wanted girls. to find a way to do the same thing with girls. Yeah. Yep. Jeez. Oh, ah! No, but I think that that's so like, that is another, the sort of simultaneous release, those sorts of questions are also useful when discussing something like canon because they're a complicated question. But the, the whole point of even having this discussion is the attempt to sort of increase your own self-awareness about when you might be being a jerk because you're policing the borders of something, even if you don't realize you're doing it. Well, there's that piece of it, but there's also the piece of understanding that you might be having two different conversations. conversations. Yes. Yes. And that gets even more important when you're in a more formal situation. In a formal scholarship place. Absolutely. To be able to say the Superman you're talking about and the Superman I'm talking about are literally not the same thing. Right. So there is a – I actually did a conference paper that compared the same scene in the book from Harry Potter to the same scene in the movie to the same scene in the Lego Harry Potter video game because they present – three completely different narratives of what happened in that moment. And if someone were like, oh, yeah, this is the way the character is, and I'd say, cite your evidence, and they said, oh, this scene from the movie, I would say, right, well, in fact, we are talking about two different characters. Like Ginny, right? three different characters. Right, well, because I wouldn't necessarily count the Harry Potter Legos as being 
characters people would refer to, but they definitely, I think that kids would interact with it that way. Kids or me, because that's about my skill level at video games is the Lego game, but <laughs> right. not very good at them. But so from a, from a general standpoint, understanding what canon is and why it's important to think about and how you might think about it is useful for you to realize when you might be policing the boundaries of your fandom in a way that could be negatively affecting someone else, or you could be feeling excluded from something. And in a more formal way, it helps reduce confusion. It helps you understand where, if you're having a disagreement with someone over popular culture, is it happening because you're fundamentally misunderstanding where the other person's coming from because you're talking about two different things. Well, yeah. Here's what we consider to be the work. Mm -hmm. And therefore... The first thing you have to do in any sort of academic setting is locate your work. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about this thing in this area. Mm -hmm. And that is vital in 2019 in this space where so many things are transmediated. I continue to use this term transmediated. And really what I mean is the same story told in multiple ways across multiple platforms. And the more transmediation happens, because it's happening more and more all the time as companies figure out it's the best capitalist way to make yes. money, the more that transmediation takes place, the more this conversation about what counts as canon becomes really important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Particularly in academic spaces. And outside of it, because if popular culture is sort of the one thing that you could rely on to give people common ground in a time when common ground's a little bit hard to come by, having these sorts of, for want of a better term, pissing contests over who's the, the more real of a fan, it ends up being silly and you're losing a chance to connect with other people. And divisive. Oh, I have the entire Pottery Barn Kids Harry Potter bedroom set. You just have a Harry Potter tattoo. Come on. <laughs> I'm clearly a bigger fan than you, right? I don't have any of those things. Well, I have two Harry Potter tattoos, but I don't have- But embedded sex. within that is not just, I'm clearly a bigger fan than you. It's also, I'm clearly a better fan than you. Right. I'm a bigger and better fan. I'm a more legitimate, more worthy, more worthwhile fan, and in some ways, by extension, a person than you are, because I'm, I'm yes. placing value, cultural value on this. I'm clearly a better person than you, mm -hmm. because I better understand this thing thing that defines who not just who I am but defines who you are too right and my understanding of this thing that you believe defines you is greater than yours which means my understanding of you is greater than yours right it becomes a very personal attack yeah which is some crap and I wonder if we were to think more about it in the moment to say Here's what canon is, here's why it matters, but here's also why we should draw a line about how much it matters. It might help us not isolate people in a moment when people are already isolated enough. Although I will say, play the devil's advocate, so to speak, <laughs> I will say that there is a certain amount of capital that comes from intimate knowledge of the canon within that canon's fan space oh my god yes i mean i'm like a walking contradiction here i'm giving advice that like i intellectually understand but i feel so good every time you all refer to me as your harry potter right. encyclopedia i feel so good about myself when that hear that there's a certain amount of cultural capital that yes. comes with that when someone says oh, yeah. for example <laughs> This is a conversation I, I have a lot in contemporary professional wrestling circles. 
when somebody goes, mm. Sasha Banks and Bailey are the first WWE Women's Tag Team Champions. And then I say, well, sure, if you forget about the Jumping Bomb Angels and about all these women who were wrestling in the early 80s, if you completely forget about them, then sure, mm-hmm. they're the first ones. And people say, well, that's not even the same title. And I'm like, really? Because they're tracing the lineage in the exact same way they trace the lineage of things like the United States Championship and the Intercontinental Championship. Why are these belts any different? And all of a sudden, people go, oh, you actually know a lot about professional wrestling. And I go, right. yes, I do. There's a certain amount of capital that comes with that. Well, and it's undeniable that we've grown up in an American culture that values winning an argument, which I know you say it's impossible to win an argument. But like when you sort of prove you know more than someone about something and they acknowledge that's that to not you, winning an argument. That's that's a different out knowledging someone for me. Now we're going to now we're going to get all rhetorical on people. For me, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. contemporary arete. That's demonstrable mm. skill. That's a demonstration of virtuosity. It's the same thing as if someone mm. says, I play the guitar, and then you get up and you shred like Eddie Van Halen. It's the exact <laughs> same thing. There's people who say, well, I know something about this thing, and you get up and you say, actually, here's my demonstrable knowledge, and they're right. forced into a space where they have to go, yes, you know more than I do. Yes, that's not do. That's not an argument. Right. That's a skill. It's almost our version our human version, because our weapon is language, it's almost our version of when two bucks go up against each other with their antlers and one walks away with a broken antler and the other one exactly. walks away is like, hey, what's up? Exactly. Hmm. There's not an argument there. There's just outperformance. Outperforming. Yeah, yeah. So it's all this to say that canon is a complicated question that got its problems. It's explicable for why we care about it and why we feel a need to understand where those boundaries are and to perform our ability to stay within them and to be an expert in those boundaries. And it I don't know, it helps us understand popular culture, but it also helps us understand how we interact with that text and with other fans. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I th- and I think that's the point. Yeah, I think that's the so what. I know you end with the so what. I think that's the so what. It's not It's not just about the work. It's definitely, it's actually less about the work than it is about how we interact with it and how we interact with each other. Well, sure. It, ultimately, that's the whole point of this conversation about canon writ large yeah. is it's not about the text. Just as it's not about the text in religious spaces either. Yeah. Going all the way that. back to the beginning of the conversation, it's not about what goes into the Bible and what doesn't go into the Bible in terms of our understanding about Jesus. It's about what goes into the Bible and what doesn't go into the Bible about our understanding of male priests attempting to keep their power over women across Mm -hmm. millennia. That's a very different conversation. And the same thing goes in contemporary fan canons as well. Contemporary popular culture canons as well. Part of it is preservation of the text, but part of it is preservation of the social relations. And for me, and obviously for you, that's the bigger piece. Yes, very much so. Because we're both rhetoricians, and so we study human communication in ways to try and understand not just what's happening therein, but how those affect the communities that are absorbing those texts. Exactly. So, as you said, we've arrived at that point, which is at the end of the day, canon... So what? Well, I'm going to repeat my so what, and you can then expound <laughs> sure. upon it or change it. So I said canon so what? It's important to understand the boundaries of what is the foundation or is not considered the foundation of some 
collective, in this case, piece of popular culture, less to understand the text and more to understand how fans relate to it and more importantly, how they relate to one another. I would absolutely agree with that. The so what for me about canon is the discussion about canon is to be able to locate a conversation to ensure that we are arguing about the same thing before we get into an argument. And public service announcement, now that you know a little bit more about canon, if you're going to have an argument about who's a bigger fan, try to do it when you're in person with someone rather than being a jerk online. Oh, but being a jerk online is what we do. Oh, Lord. It's 2019, haven't you heard? Oh, <laughs> it's what, it's what we do. I'm trying. My poor public service announcements. Just trying. I'm trying. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for coming back to us for season three. We've got a whole bunch of really exciting stuff on tap for this season. As we head back into the academic year, for those of us in academia, we will have some new guest deconstruction workers this season. I've got some great people lined up and some returning favorites as well. There's all kinds of stuff on tap for you to take us through the rest of 2019. So for Dr. Lauren Camachi, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for hanging out with me, Lauren. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next time. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.